1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to this year's first episode of the Brainiac Podcast. My name is Stefan Bianchi, and I'm really looking forward to being your host throughout this school year. I just want to say a first quick thank you to everyone at the Concussion Legacy Foundation U of T T chapter for giving me this opportunity. Um, And with that, I'll just give a brief intro of myself before we get into the bulk of this month's episode. So um, I'm a second year student in the Faculty of Kinesiology and Physical Education here at U of T working under the supervision of Dr. Michael Hutchison in the Concussion Research Program. Um, I'm so excited to continue learning more about concussions alongside our listeners as we interview some great guests within the U of T community. And on that note, I'll give just a quick overview of today's episode. So seeing that October is Occupational Therapy Month here in Canada, I thought it would be really fitting to sort of start our conversation and start this episode by talking about the role that occupational therapists play in concussion rehab, and how they contribute to a growing collaborative approach to care. Um, beyond that, we'll all, we'll also talk about how COVID has impacted concussions and their treatment and wrap things up with a little discussion about concussion in youth. And to help us with that, I'm so thrilled to be joined by Dr. Ann Hunt. Dr. Hunt and I actually met um, during a placement I had at Holland Blue Review a few years ago, and I'm so, so excited to be reconnecting with her today. So thank you so much for taking the time to join me today, Dr. Hunt.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure, thanks for having me.
1: Awesome. And so I'm gonna give a quick bio about Dr. Hunt before we get started so everyone's more familiar with her work. So Dr. Hunt is an, an assistant professor in the Department of Occupational Science and Occupational Therapy here at the University of Toronto. And is also an adjunct scientist with the Concussion Center at Harlem Burview Kids Rehabilitation Hospital here in Toronto. Um, as an occupational therapist by profession, Dr. Hunt's research interests focus on developing interventions that enable individuals with acquired, acquired brain injuries, such as concussions, to participate optimally in meaningful activities in everyday life. Just um, want to have a quick icebreaker before we get started, just so the listeners can kind of get to know you a little bit better, if that's all right. Um, yeah, sounds I, good. So I was going to start with the, you know, more, I guess, more basic question of how did you get into the concussion space, but I kind of want to mix things up a little bit. Um, so my question is going to be, if you could go to dinner with any three people, dead or alive, who would they be? And where would you go?
0: Oh, gosh. Okay, this this is a tough one. But the first, I'll tell you, the first one that comes to my mind is um, Commander Hadfield, our Canadian uh, astronaut. Mm-hmm. I... Um, his work is just fascinating. And what fascinates me is, is he's one of those scientists that like does everything. Um, I'm mm-hmm. always amazed at scientists who have passions like away from their science. Like, um, you know, he's a musician, for example. Yeah, that's right. um, And I loved following him when he, he was tweeting from the International Space Station. So uh, mm-hmm. he's fascinating. Um, another one that I would love to get together with um, is Queen Elizabeth hey you know she's she is 95 she's seen a lot of stuff go on in her life and I just would love to get her you know her her perspective on things sure. um I didn't mention but I'd love to just go to the an outdoor patio and have a beer with him okay Queen Elizabeth it would have to be tea Absolutely. like it somewhere for sure um, and then the last person I, I can think of right now, anyway, I'm, I'm um, been very interested in educating myself more about truth and reconciliation, mm-hmm. and I would love to um, to speak with um, Mary Simon, um, our new Governor General in Canada, mm-hmm. um, who um, is an Indigenous person, and I would love to to chat with her a little bit more. Um, and I would love to go anywhere; she would love to go with me.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a great answer, especially the last point, you know, very kind of an important point. And you know, Canada's um, again, you know, process of educating ourselves on kind of what's been going on in our history. And I think that's you know very important point. So thank you for that really interesting answer. And I think with that, let's kind of move into the bulk of our episode. And I want to start at more of a high level in case there may be some listeners who are unfamiliar with the role. So just quickly, what is an occupational therapist and what do they do in general?
0: So, yeah, that that's a great question. Um, it's taken me, you know, 32 years to kind of figure that out. And it's, it's OT does so much. Um, mm-hmm. But basically, and in a nutshell, what we do is we help people that have been injured or ill, uh, get back to doing their normal daily activities and routines. And if they can't get back to doing those things, we figure out ways that they might do things differently, or we help support them to do um, new things that um, are meaningful to them. And, um, and I, and I just want to say that we look at a number of things when we do this, we look at personal factors so you know what's going on with them personally with their sort of their physical body their cognitive self their emotional self we also look at the context that they live in like so their their work what roles and responsibilities they have um, and we also look at their environment so what are the environmental factors that may be contributing to somebody's um, ability to to do things that are meaningful for them Um, So that's kind of it in a nutshell, but but OTs work in all kinds of different areas um, from physical health to mental health, to preventative health, um, to emergency care. We work in hospitals, we work in shelters, we work in um, community organizations, rehabilitation hospitals, um, all kinds of things.
1: Wow, that's really fascinating. So thank you for that. It seems like it's a pretty expansive field that maybe I guess even myself was you know unaware of so that's really interesting thank you for sharing that Um, and just so we can continue kind of learning more about it I you know in my research kind of for this episode I I kind of stumbled across some um, common misconceptions or you know quote-unquote myths surrounding occupational therapy and I was wondering if we could just you know go over a couple of those so you can kind of give us an even better picture and kind of explain why these might not be you know completely accurate so sorry
0: sure yeah let's go
1: so one that i came across is that you know occupational therapists and physical therapists or physiotherapists are basically the same thing you know can you explain why that isn't you know completely accurate
0: yeah that you know um i think um OT and PTs work very closely together in many settings. And so sometimes there is overlap in what we do. So so I see why that sometimes is a common misconception. the best way I can describe that, and this is, I'm making this really simplistic. So if there's mm-hmm. um, physical therapists and OTs listening to this, they may not like this so much, but I'm just going to try to distill it down a little bit. Perfect. Um, it, it, the nuances are just kind of enormous, but, but I would say in sort of in a nutshell, um, physical therapists are, are, are mostly focused on somebody's physical function. And so strength, um, mobility, balance, coordination, sensation, that kind Kind of thing um, and OTs are, are 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 focused on those things but in addition cognition um, psychosocial health and well-being and again as I was mentioning before sort of the context of where and when somebody is doing um, activities um, so to to make again to give you a really simple example, if um, somebody's having trouble feeding themselves, like using a like a spoon or a fork mm-hmm. to actually bring um, their hand to their mouth, the physio would sort of work on the movement aspect of that, um, you know, sort of elbow flexion, um, strength and coordination in in moving one's hand to to the mouth, and the OT would actually put the fork in the hand. Um, and, and um, use it to, to help them eat. So that's sort of a really simplistic way of, of explaining some of the differences between um, OT and PT.
1: Okay, that was, no, that was great. Thank you for that. Um, another one that I came across, um, which is you know, ironic because I know for a fact that this isn't true because of our time together at Holland Blue Review, but one, another one that I came across is that occupational therapy is you know, mainly for older people. They're seen as something that's you know, exclusive to older patients.
0: Yeah, no, that, and that is definitely, a, that is definitely a myth. Um, OTs and PTs work with people of all ages, um, mm-hmm. from you know, babies um, through, um, through, you know, as old as you can get. So, yeah, yeah, yeah that's, okay. that's a definite myth.
1: Awesome. And so now getting more specific um, with concussion, you know, sort of as a student in, in this space, I've kind of come to realize that concussion management and care has kind of, seen a bit of a shift to a more multidisciplinary approach, you know, as has healthcare in general, you know, with doctors, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, kinesiologists, you know, among all, among others, you know, contributing to the rehab process altogether. And so now that we have a general idea of what an occupational therapist is and what they do, and in what role do they play specifically in the concussion rehabilitation process, and how do they contribute to this growing multidisciplinary approach?
0: Yeah. So thanks for that question. Um, you know, this field has really been evolving and OTs have worked with people with brain injuries more generally, um, since the inception of the profession. And, um, but I think, you know, sort of around the time Sidney Crosby had his concussion, mm. um, I like was 10 years or so ago now, um, sports related concussion in my mind and in Canada really sort of started to get some attention. And so, you know, I remember going to a brain injury conference in 2012 where, um, Michael Hutchison, um, and I think Chris Nowinski from concussion legacy foundation were talking, it was a conference in Edinburgh and it was like the first brain injury conference that I'd been to where concussion, like and actually the word concussion, like Mm -hmm. really stood out. I think they did a keynote and, um, it really stood out. And, um, it was it was quite exciting to me to be uh, at that that conference and to sort of, you know, um, see concussion and sport related concussion getting some attention. And um, as an OT who had always worked in in the brain injury field. So I had a, a sort of a 20 year career prior to that, um, working with people in the community with um mild to moderate brain injuries it was something that I knew a fair bit about um but OTs kind of weren't necessarily thought of in relation to sport-related concussion it was more sort of this you know more um a little bit more severe brain injury and Mm -hmm. and so people weren't really thinking of OTs in relation to sport-related concussion um now um Sort of how I got into this field, actually, in dealing more with concussion versus moderate brain injuries was, um, you know, I've got three kids who are all um, big into sports, and one of them was having trouble recovering from concussion. And um, at one point, and this was around the time I was doing my PhD, which is in a brain brain injury topic. But I connected with uh, another one of my, my colleagues at uh, U of T, Nick Reed, mm-hmm. um, and at that time, he, you know, there wasn't much out there in how to help people with sport related concussion. It was they were told to rest until they felt better and sit in a dark room until they, and then, um, you know, when they felt better, they could come out of that dark room mm-hmm. and get back to doing their activities. And I was watching my kid sit in a dark room, If you know, he was 15 at the time, sit in a dark room without his friends, without school, without social media, or without computer TV. And, you know, as an OT, knowing that engagement in meaningful activity contributes to health and well-being, I was sort of thinking to myself, like, this isn't right, this isn't yeah. working. And so, so I connected with Nick, who handed me an article by Isabel Gagnon, who's a a physical therapist and a researcher Mm -hmm. um, at McGill. And she had just come out with an article where she used an active rehab approach for kids with concussion. And yeah, and I, you know, Nick sort of gave me the article and said, I don't know, try this. And with my kid and saw an immediate change Hmm. and you know, I don't know why that was. Whether you know he was ready for this, whether it was coincidence. Um, but my subsequent work has sort of led me to think that no, no, no. This being engaged, figuring out ways that that people can be involved in meaningful activity as they recover is really important. And so this is my long-winded way of telling, of saying that OTs can help people, like one of the the ways that OTs can help people in concussion recovery is to help them manage activities with rest so that they can engage in meaningful activities while they recover. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And we do that in a number of ways, but I think the biggest way we do that is education. So educating people about sort of, you know, what it means to, um, balance your activity with rest most of us are really bad at it
1: yeah no, for for sure and I think that story about you know going from rest to then going to active rehabilitation is sort of like a great example of just where the fields moved and kind of how quickly it's it's gotten there and I've only been in this space for again a couple of years but you know in learning about kind of where it's been and where it is now it's you know only been maybe 10 to 15 years where it's kind of progress really really quickly and so I think that's great but it just goes to show how little we knew back then and kind of how much we know now which is you know really interesting and
0: yeah and I'm not sure how we even started going down that pathway because when you look at things like sensory deprivation sticking somebody in in a dark room Mm -hmm. you know without the absence of other sort of noises and sound when you come out you're going to be bombarded with all that stuff Mm -hmm. and feel lousy as a result so um I'm not sure kind of where that that sort of thinking came from you know and it sort of reminded me again I'm like probably showing my age here but it reminded me of you know when heart disease heart heart patients were originally like way way back when um you know, we're in my sort of my grandparents' era that heart patients were told to rest and not do anything, and now mm-hmm. we know that's right. not good. We want people to move and we want people to exercise, and so I think um, one of the other things that OTs can help do is um, support um, not only sort of that energy management piece, but they can also be involved in the supervision of active rehab programs. Right. Um, one of the things I think is really important in active rehab programs is that there is professional supervision because when in media, we read things like, yeah, exercise after concussion and, you know, it, it, you can do aerobic exercise. And so people think, oh yeah, I'm going to go, okay, I'll just go for a short run today. And, um, it's too much. Yeah. And so yeah. you have sort of professional supervision to tell you that. And I, am thinking of a recent, um, a recent consult I had where, um, an athlete, you know, got in touch and said, you know, I, I, um, you know, had hit this person to hit their head and they, um, were trying to get back to their sport really quickly. And, um, to do that, they had driven, you know, a half hour to go get a massage. They had driven home. They had, um, gone for, I, I think a short jog and, couldn't understand like why the sort of the following day symptoms had returned with a vengeance mm-hmm. um but you know it' was sort of so it was a simply sort of a matter of sitting down and and chatting with that person to say you know okay well let's think about what you did so driving most people don't think of is a really it's a really cognitively demanding mm-hmm. activity sure, yeah. So, um, but you know, they didn't know that. So, so thinking about, okay, well, like, let's, let's think about what you're going to do today and tomorrow to do things a little bit differently so that you're balancing that activity and rest.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think like you touched on that point where it's like, you know, you can, you hear, oh, it's good to do light aerobic activity, but it's like, what do I do? When do I, when do I do it? And so having that supervision and that guidance from a professional, like an OT would, you know, be extremely important. So, you know, thank you for touching on that. I think that's a really um, important point.
0: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey.
2: Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello, fresh! Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
1: And you know, just getting a little bit more specific in terms of like the types of interventions or like the approaches. Um, that are used. I was going through a recent paper of yours from 2019 that used something called the co-op approach to help specifically in this case, it was children experiencing persistent concussion symptoms. Um, Can you first sort of introduce what the co-op approach is and and what it aims to do? Because I actually found it really interesting when I was reading through the paper.
0: Oh, good. Well, thank you. Um, So the co-op approach is it was it was it's it's what we call a metacognitive training approach. So um, it's it's where you learn sort of a an overall global strategy to help you um, get through your daily activities. Um, it was actually originally developed for kids with developmental coordination disorder in order to help them um, achieve um, motor skills. So things like you know okay. bike riding or. Um, Um, jumping rope. And um, Deirdre Dawson at uh, Rotman Research Institute, who's also an OT, thought, you know, the way this strategy works, um, this metacognitive strategy training approach might be helpful for, for people with mild brain injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, because often in mild brain injuries, what's disrupted is executive function. So it's sort of our ability to plan, yeah. um, to organize things. And so often we find that in people with mild brain injuries, including concussion, um, that this, this organization, planning, um, um, sort of these higher order thinking skills are disrupted. And so we tried it. Um, I was working in her lab at the time, and we tried it with, with um, adults. Uh, with mild to moderate brain injuries and it worked really well. Mm -hmm. And so I subsequently had used it in my practice and um, I, it was life-changing for many of the people that, that used it with. And so I wondered in some of the kids that had um, were having trouble recovering. So they were having lengthy recoveries um, at some point, you know, you have to do something different. And so the co-op approach, what it does is you teach somebody a strategy and the strategy is goal, plan, do, check. And it it has its roots in um, sort of some theory. And one of them is goal-directed behavior, where basically, you know, theories of goal-directed behavior that are that you do just that. You set a goal, um, you make plans to reach that goal you do those plans and then you check to see if you've, you've achieved that goal Mm -hmm. and that's co-op approach in a nutshell. So, um, so just about any activity we do, we're either, you know, mostly we're subconsciously using that, that, strategy goal plan do check so you know um even showing up for this podcast today so my goal was to be here at 10 o'clock my plan was to be um to check my watch and have an alarm set so that i would be here i did my plan and my check is that i know that it worked because here i am um perfect yeah so that's that's kind of the co-op approach in a nutshell and we wondered if this would would be helpful for kids who are struggling to recover Mm-hmm. kids are a little bit different right because they rely on their parents for a lot of things and a lot of parents like don't you know they, they were kind of at the stage where like what what do I do like help you know help us because we yeah. don't we've tried everything and it's not working so we wondered if the co-op approach would be helpful for these kids because one of the things that we find using the co-op approach is that people learn to self-regulate by using it so And it also gives them more confidence, because they can sort of um, attribute, if something doesn't work, they can attribute the sort of the failure to, well, it was just the plan, like I didn't, the plan didn't work. It wasn't me personally, that's a failure. The plan wasn't right. And I and um, we teach people when we're using the co op approach that, well, if one plan doesn't work, there's always another one.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it sounds like it's a very sort of patient-centered approach and, you know, especially in, in a context where recovery hasn't been going, you know, as planned and the, the persistent symptoms in case the study was, I think, over three months, most some of them had been experiencing symptoms. You know, why do you think it's so important to, to take patient-centered approaches to kind of recovery?
0: Yeah. Um, and again, that's a great question. And it, it goes back to like sort of our, our roots and values as OTs that, that we really know that through meaningful activity, um, when you engage people in activities that are meaningful for them, um, they're going to do better. Mm-hmm. So if I give you a task that, you know, you're not really interested in, in therapy, you're not really going to give it your all, you're not going to be super interested, you'll probably do it f- because you're just trying to be nice, but,
2: you yeah. know,
0: it, it it, you know, it's just going to kind of not be super helpful. Um, and there've been lots of studies done in, in occupational therapy related literature to show that people do better when you give them something that's, that's meaningful to them. And so that was part of our, our thinking here was that let's ask kids what they need to do or what they need or want to work on in relation to, um, to recovery. And the nice thing too, with the co-op approach is that you're asking people to come up with what we call occupations. So, um, occupations are, are activities. So anything that we do in daily life. So, you know, going to school, going to work, um, getting dressed in the morning, taking a shower. Um, so all those kinds of things. So kids were able to identify what were, you know, meaningful to them and kids. Um, The the one thing I think that that sort of stands out for me in my work um, as an an OT researcher in the brain injury field is that um, what what is meaningful to people is often not what we expect. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we found through our work was that kids in particular with concussion, they would have a sport related concussion. And the thinking is that, you know, they want to get back to their sport. And yes, they clearly do, because they've told us that. But equally, they want to get back to school. They want to get back to their part-time job. They want to get back to social things, like hanging out with their friends. And um, we see so much focus on getting back to sport, um, which again is fine. But we also need to emphasize Um, getting back to those other things because they're equally as important. like playing instruments, doing musical theater. So uh, these kids that are involved in sports are also doing these other things that are also super important to them. And so um, the co-op approach in in our study um, is very small as a feasibility study. um, But that also brought that out. And I think that's why Mm -hmm. these kids did so well. in in using the co-op approach because it helped them get get back to doing things that they loved and it also gave them control so you know if we had a um a kid who wanted to get back to doing their physics homework um yeah. you know the 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 kids um thought about like okay well what what do you know what's going to work for me like what do i need to do mm-hmm. so do i need to schedule a specific time every day do i need to do it at school during my spare period where I have the teacher there. So it really put the onus on the kid to come up with the plan and not their parent. And so I think that that yeah. was also a really important thing that we learned through the study that um, the kids are capable of doing that too. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So almost like empowering them to sort, to sort of guide their own rehab, of course, with the supervision of you know yourself seems like it, a pretty big impact on them in terms of their ability to adhere to the treatment, but also just doing things like you said that they wanted to do and sort of would have motivated them along that path a little more. So.
0: Exactly, exactly. And um, yeah, no, yeah, exactly. And so That's this f- goal plan do check. Um, was really useful for them. And the other thing we we do with the co-op approach is that we teach them to use it for other things other than what we're working on together so that the approach generalizes and transfers to other activities so that any problem they encounter in daily life, they can think, oh, I use goal plan do check for other things and it worked for me. Maybe I can use it in this situation. So for example, we had kids in, in, um, in the study um, and subsequent studies who are going off to university and we would say, you know, like goodbye and good luck and don't forget to use uh, the co-op approach when you encounter a difficulty next year.
1: Yeah, that that's great that, you, that they can sort of, you know, not only does this help them with their concussion, but then they can take it with them to help with sort of anything that's sort of impacting their day-to-day life because like you said, OT is about getting back to meaningful activities so they can apply it to anything that sort of disrupts that for them. so I think that's actually really great.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, as a therapist, like we don't want somebody to be dependent on us for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. So our whole goal is to like, you know, get you better and get you to a point where you can, you can manage everything that you need to do yourself. So we don't want you to be dependent on us either. So that's yeah. why this approach just works so, so well. It's um I, I'm just a real fan of the co-op approach for many, many things. Um, I I have a really nice example though. I wanted to tell you about the meaningful activity mm-hmm. piece that so I had a, a client once who was a football coach. Okay. And he wanted to all he wanted to do, he'd had um an acquired brain injury and all he wanted to do was to be able to use the channel changer um to um he used to like to watch old games and so he'd yeah. um just wanted to use the channel changer to um so that he could control stopping and rewinding the videos and stuff and um his family member was like no we don't want him to do that <laughs> <laughs> like because it wasn't important to them but that was all he wanted to do yeah. and and, and that made therapy successful when we were able to focus on on that particular goal um so you know it, it just it um if there's ways that you can incorporate meaningful activity in, into what you're doing it makes all the difference in the world
1: yeah that's that's a great story and a great point like 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 you mentioned just you know if it's meaningful to them they need more motivated more empowered to kind of adhere to treatment and just kind of be motivated along the process that can be, you know, a little rocky at times for sure, especially with concussion. So I think that's a great, great, great point. Thank you for sharing that story and you know, all of your expertise with the co-op approach. I think, you know, hopefully something our listeners can even take with them, you know, if they're suffering from concussion or just any sort of um, thing that's kind of hindering their day-to-day life. Um, and, you know, and you did touch a little bit on, you know, of course the study was, was in youth and you did touch a little bit on, um you know, your expertise with youth. So I think this is a good spot to kind of move on to youth um in particular. And I was wondering if you could touch on, you know, some of the common challenges or differences that would be unique to younger patients when they're trying to navigate their recovery from concussion.
0: Yeah, I think um I think one of the differences is that kids usually you know often rely on um somebody else. So Mm -hmm. they're relying on their parent or their caregiver or their coach or somebody to recognize what's happened to them. So I'm thinking about, you know, when concussions first happen, they're often reliant on other people to recognize what's happened and to get them um, the proper attention. And so it's, they're reliant on um, other people to get their diagnosis to begin with. And so that that's that's a key difference. So I think that's why we do a lot of educating. Um, why it's very important to educate everybody about concussion, so that there's just more awareness. You know, if you get a hit to the head or the body, um, it's something to pay attention to.
2: Mm-hmm. Not
0: every hit to the head or body is going to result in a concussion, that's right. mm-hmm. um, but at least it should be on people's radar to sort of watch and um, and look. And it's particularly important in younger children who don't have the verbal skills to say, you know, my head hurts or something's wrong. Little kids, you know, and I, I think about this often is that little kids when they have like strep throat, for example, they often complain their tummy hurts. And mm-hmm. so um It's just that they know something hurts and, you know, maybe it is their tummy or that's what they're feeling, um, but they're not super accurate in their description of what's going on. So that's why it's really important for other people to be um, to understand the signs and symptoms of concussion. And that's why we try to do a ton of education with coaches, with parents, um, caregivers. And so it's really important um, for that. And the other thing we're trying to focus more on now, too, is educating peers. So, in our Oak okay. Concussion Lab, that's run by, by Nick Reed, um, in um, the Occupational Science and Occupational Therapy Department at U of T, um, we're doing a lot of work on um, peer identification, peer support, um, it's because sometimes it peers can say, "Hey, you know what? You might have a concussion. You yeah, need to speak sure. somebody," you know, or or the peers can help that. That student or that that kid go talk with their coach or a parent so or a teacher, so peers can be a really 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 great influence um, and a great help and support mm-hmm. in, in concussion identification and concussion recovery. Um, so that so you know this this one big difference in um, in kids. Um, The what I was talking about in terms of identifying symptoms, kids are notoriously not so great. Um, Not all kids, but many kids are are just not great at identifying symptoms and knowing what's going on. So that's one thing. And what I'm particularly interested in right now is understanding a little bit more about how really little kids uh, present Mm -hmm. with concussion. So kids sort of under the age of five. Um, And what are the, you know, what are the differences that we need to think about when educating parents of younger kids who have had concussion or in terms of identifying concussion in little kids. So
2: Mm
0: -hmm. um, that's sort of a a new, a new or emerging area of interest. Um, The other thing too, is that um, the impact of the family on concussion can be quite important. Um, Sometimes we have families that don't want to um, um, let the the concussed child do anything. Oh, and, okay. and so, um, you know, recovering from concussion is sort of like it's this balance, right? So we yeah, want them absolutely. to do a little bit. After the first 24 to 48 hours of rest, then you can start resuming things gradually. That's the current guidance we have.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but that there are many families that are reluctant to let their kids um do things. And yeah. so um so that's an important piece of um education and on the flip side of it we have uh families that push their kids to do too much. Yeah. So again it's finding that balance and um educating people and supporting them. It's very I think it's very hard for families to navigate this alone. Yeah. And um, recently, our recently graduated uh, master's student, Josh Shore, did a really great study where he used t- uh, telerehab rehab um, mm-hmm. to provide active rehab programs and education and support for families. And they all said that, like all the people that were in the study all said that, like we really needed this education oh, and wow. support on a longer term. So, you know, um, giving somebody like. A paper in emergency that says like do this, do that, do the other thing. It's helpful mm-hmm. um, to some extent, but it's even more helpful if you have ongoing help and support until people are feeling um, better.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I guess you know, for a lot of families, it's something they would have wouldn't have had to experience before, and so once they they do, it's like oh boy, like, what do, what what do I do? Um, so I think. Of course, education is a huge piece. We touched on Josh's work using tele-rehabilitation, which is you know, very unique and especially um, you know, relevant to kind of what we're dealing with now. But what are some other sort of approaches that have been taken that you've used in the past to educate? Because it's clear that education is you know, a hugely important piece, especially when dealing with you know, young children and their families who, like I said, and like you said, might not be very familiar with concussions because you know it's a complex, invisible injury and very new for a lot of people.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think the, you know, the um, most people when they get proper education and support early on do very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, you know, a small percentage of people that continue to have um, persistent symptoms um, and, you know, can be caused for the maybe due to a variety of factors and so it's really important for those people that are having um, persistent symptoms to get in touch with a, um, a multidisciplinary team or an mm-hmm. interprofessional team of people because there can be a variety of reasons why somebody might have persistent symptoms. Um, And, you know, sometimes it may have nothing, may have nothing to do with concussion. There may be something else going on. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's really important if your symptoms are persisting to get in touch with the, with um, a team that um, um, specializes in concussion work. And, you know, I'll just share an example with you that in, um, um, Sometimes what I would find is that I'd be working with a kid and they'd be absolutely fine, like stick handling, like a hockey player. They'd be fine stick handling while they were looking at the goal. But as soon as they started sort of looking down at the puck, then looking at the goal, looking down at the puck, looking at the goal, they'd get dizzy. And so that would sort of flag to me that, you know, I think there's something visual going on. And so then we refer them to an optometrist that had, um, you know, special t- specialized in concussion. And, you know, sure enough, there were some visual issues going on mm. that were easily correctable with um, some some uh, vision intervention. So there, you know, and sometimes you can uncover uh, vestibular issues, same thing. Yeah. Um, and you see that, and OTs can pick that up because we see that once people start to engage in, in activities um, uh, of daily live, living. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so that's one of the valuable contributions of OT that you, know, you can pick these things up and then you can you know, sort out like, oh, okay, this, one, this person's got some vestibular issues. And then they go see the physio on the team who, who can um, uh, do further assessment and treatment in, in vestibular dysfunction. Um, so, and sometimes there's medical reasons, like sometimes, um, yeah. you know, there's uh, your blood pressure gets out of whack or, you know, and so, so the physician needs to be involved in, um, assessing, um, medical issues in a little bit more depth. So anyone that's got persistent symptoms really should, be a, um, a multidisciplinary team. And there've been lots of work done to show, and there's lots of literature out there to show that. Um, multidisciplinary teams are, are, are what is needed for people that have more complicated recoveries.
1: Very interesting. I guess, you know, because concussions are so complex, there's so many moving parts, having people with a variety of expertise would, you know, be key to identifying a problem. If there is one and sort of um, moving in that direction to have that problem solved and work towards recovery more efficiently, I guess it would be.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: And, you know, one thing about the youth um, population I really interest, and, t- and you touched upon it a bit already, is sort of that family dynamic. Um, you know, when a um, you know family is dealing with a concussion, like a concussed child, for example, how does an OT or maybe even just a physician go about educating a family that is pretty unaware and maybe a little bit scared or timid in terms of what's going on? Kind of what, is, what steps do they take to sort of calm the nerves and just Sort of give an explanation of what's going on.
0: Yeah, uh, you know that's that's a great question. Um, I think very straightforward factual information is mm-hmm. really important, um, and giving people an opportunity to ask their questions. Yeah, okay. and yeah, and um, at Holland in um, for many years, uh, we ran a concussion and you education session. That's right. Um, yeah, and that was a free um, a free um, in-person or it was being offered online. Um, I'm not sure, to be honest, what's going on, how it's being offered right now in relation to COVID, but um, that was an incredibly helpful session where people could have the opportunity to ask their questions, um, get resources. And this is the other thing that I think is really important for people is that um that they have access to accurate resources there's a lot of information on concussion out there that isn't yeah. helpful and it isn't mm-hmm. correct and so having um, a program a free access to a program that people could come to to find accurate resources i think is really also quite important
1: absolutely yeah, yeah. I remember um, when I was at Holland Blue, I used to work in that shared space where those concussion and new presentations would go on. I remember kind of like listening in sometimes, and you know, it would it would be pretty clear that the like the patient and their families actually learned quite a bit, and, and they would leave a little bit more, you know, assured. So I think that you know something like that is you know wonderful, um, and the fact that it was accessible and free kind of makes it you know that much better.
0: Yeah, and I I think back to like when I was going through it with with my kid that there was nowhere to go like Mm -hmm. there was nobody that had information um like you know again it was told to sit in the dark room and so having um and i don't think this is this is limited to concussion it's just about like any health issue um getting accurate information is is helpful
1: Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely And, you know, you mentioned that you don't know if it's going on anymore with COVID. And I think that's, you know, a good time to sort of switch gears a little bit. And I know everyone listening is probably done with all the COVID conversation, but I think it's an important thing to touch on. So we'll quickly touch on it before we wrap up. And looking back over the last year and a half or so, how has COVID impacted concussion treatment in terms of how it's conducted now and how interventions may have to be adapted to suit those changes?
0: Yeah, so um it's kind of been interesting in the concussion world because we we sort of were expecting that because sports weren't happening, you know, accidents weren't were down, um Mm -hmm. that you know maybe we would see fewer concussions. Um and that's true, we we did. Um we did see people though in general who are you know managing their concussions do a bit better. And I think largely because um, the demands in everyday life for a while were kind of shut down.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, the social demands, the running around with school and sports and yeah. work, um, those things were shut down. And so, a lot of people with concussion experienced um, an improvement in their symptoms initially. I think that that sort of has changed, though, as as our activities have changed, and we've mm-hmm. been trying to sort of navigate, like, okay, how do I do my exercise if I don't have the gym? I don't have access right. to uh, the services that I, the support services that I would usually be using. Um, and so, I think there's a subsequent increase in people's anxieties about how am I going to manage this. Mm-hmm. Um, the screens were another issue.
1: Yeah, you um, ask about that. So that's great. Yeah.
0: The screens are another issue. Um, you know, I just want to say, like, the research evidence is kind of mixed about whether screens make things worse um, okay. for people. Um, the study we just did with kids um, using tele rehab, it it did not impact kids their them at all. They didn't. They weren't bothered by by the screens. But there's another study that just came out that said that um, people's recoveries uh, were. The screens. Uh, I can't remember now. I was. I. I, I I'm getting all my details mixed up. Oh, hey. But um, there was another study. It was a bigger study. It was an RCT that that showed that screens within the first forty-eight hours okay. uh, led to, I think, longer recoveries. But um, but it was more. Um, um, I think again, it, it's more that if people were looking at screens in the first forty-eight hours. would just be like doing other, you know, doing other activities, they weren't resting. Mm
2: -hmm. So
0: um, you have to sort of think about everything in context. Um, Anyway, so the screens, the screens, we're not sure yet. I think for some people, screens bother them. But I think for more people, it's just sitting and doing anything without taking a break is the issue rather than the screen itself for most people.
2: Okay.
0: And now people are sort of getting back to doing their activities. Yeah. And and I, and I think, you know, we're going to, we'll, we'll see what happens um, whether we see more sort of sport related injuries because people are deconditioned um, we'll have to see. And, um, but the good thing, I think uh, one of the good things to come out of um, COVID is Mm tele-rehab and tele-rehab is really nice because it saves people from schlepping into their provider's office and so for many people with concussion again that's like one more thing to add to your day and you don't um, most people don't think about you know the half hour or the hour or more that you're spending getting to your provider's office whether it's taking the subway the bus the car you know that sucks energy and so Um, without having that, people had more energy to engage in in other things, and so that was a good thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think that that seems to be continuing, at least for many of my OT colleagues, they're doing most of their their rehab by um, tele rehab now.
1: And you know, I think COVID's on a kind of, I guess, a positive, like you said, to come out of COVID is that it sort of like necessitated some of these changes that I think were going to be inevitable down the road, but kind of brought them in now, like tele rehab and zoom meetings and all that stuff because we didn't have any other options are there any sort of a question that i would have is that from a clinical perspective are there any sort of um you know difficulties or changes to the sort of like the patient clinician relationship is it a little bit different online in terms of how you interact with somebody that you know there's a difference i guess between you know being there with somebody and then supporting them online is there like a is that difference you know significant enough to warrant changes to kind of how that approach is done or is it kind of just good how it is it saves people time energy I guess there's pros and cons
0: yeah that's a that's a big question it's something that my colleagues and I are trying to figure out um right now um we do have a lot of students that are going out on virtual placements and I'm mm-hmm. actually kind of in the midst of developing um a sort of a virtual student practice um mm-hmm. resource but um the, the you know we we don't know yet like we it's don't so know new. yeah i think it's going to be i think it's going to be getting back to that sort of meaningful activities i think for many people um uh this virtual um therapy world it will be good for other mm-hmm. people they may need still need that in person um Um, that in-person care uh, in order to be most effective but it's not clear like who like who benefits most from tele-rehab and who benefits most from in-person and it also depends on what you're doing you know That's right. um so like for example you know the 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 example i was saying of the kid using the hockey stick and uh, um, observing um you know what was going on that wouldn't be that would be really hard to do via tele-rehab mm-hmm. yeah so so you do you know i think some things like the education pieces would be ideally delivered online yeah um, and you know, we were doing that prior to COVID and that worked so well because we could deliver those to people, you know, virtually anytime they wanted, um, to engage in an online platform. So, mm-hmm. um, I, I think it's, it's unclear. I think at this yeah. point, um, I think for some people, it'll be great. And for other people, they're still going to need the in-person, um, yeah. care, but for it's education cool. purposes, we're learning like online is fantastic.
1: Um, you know and that, and that makes sense you know, I think if, I, if I've learned anything in my two years in this space it's like concussion is so variable you don't know kind of like you said you don't know who needs what what's going to benefit others so you know it makes complete sense that we're still unsure about this as we are about um many things and just here's, one,
0: your, here's your PhD project oh, oh
1: boy that's a thinking too far ahead for me I take it at a time <laughs> where I want to start panicking over here um <laughs> But one last thing that I wanted to touch on, and you kind of mentioned that the, that COVID might have brought upon some anxieties with recovery in terms of not having access to, you know, the services that they might usually have had access to. I think, you know, the psychological aspect of concussions somewhat underrated in terms of it doesn't get enough, um, you know, coverage and, you know, terms of the impact it can have. Do you think that the isolation that people might have faced during COVID in terms of, you know, not seeing their friends, not being with their teams, not going to school, had an impact on that side of um, the symptoms and made maybe those a little more prevalent than they would otherwise be?
0: 100%. Um, I think concussion really, uh, for many people, it really gives your psychology a bit of a blow. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it's especially for for people who live alone, uh, for people who are used to being part of a team, um, and getting support from that team it uh, it's it's challenging and um, you know team members don't really know oh do I call him or do I leave
2: mm-hmm.
0: leave him alone or yeah. I don't want to bug him so there's a lot of sort of uncertainty around like how do I act with people with concussion but um it, 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 so I think that's why we're trying to do a lot of work with peers right now and yeah. to educate people on, you know, how you can continue to include somebody in your circle, even though they may not be able to actually be present, or maybe there are ways for that person to be present. So I do think that the isolation from COVID um, that was required by a lot of people was was really difficult. And I think it's st- it still is, because yeah. what's heard now is that people are navigating the like, oh, I'm scared. I'm scared to do this. I'm worried about doing this. Mm-hmm. And so I think as as we kind of get back into doing activities, um, we need to be patient with one another and recognize that some people are not comfortable doing things right. where other people are more comfortable. And that it's just going to take some of us more time than than others to get back to doing things like going to the gym, going to restaurants, um, going to to parties or um doing social things even going to classes you know um yeah it's... so yeah so i i do think that it's sort of wrapped up in in yeah like i do think covid has had a, a huge impact on not just people with concussion but sort of everyone in general and we all just need to continue to be patient with one another as we navigate this really strange time
1: yeah that's that's a great point i think that's you know being conscious of time here i think that that's like a great point to actually sort of wrap the episode up on not even specific to concussion that's just sort of like a a real life point so i appreciate uh, you making the effort to make that point um and so you know I, i'm so so appreciative of you taking the time today dr hunt and me with me this was you know a great conversation i couldn't have imagined this episode um going any better you know shared a lot of great information about the importance of occupational therapy and concussion we talked about youth and wrapped up with a conversation was about COVID. So I really, really do appreciate you again, taking the time today to, uh, to join me.
0: It was my pleasure. Thank you so, so much for having me. It was, it was really yeah. great.
1: And so just before we wrap up, I do want to give you the opportunity to let our listeners know where they can find you on social media or where they could find sort of information about your lab and, and the work that you do. So I'll give you an opportunity to plug that stuff here.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, Well, you can find me and follow me on Twitter, um, Dr. Anne, A-N-N-E-W Hunt, H-U-N-T. You can follow me on Twitter if you want. And if you want to check out what's going on in our lab, you can um, check out oakconcussionlab.weebly.com. Um, so you can meet our team and see what some of our research projects uh, are, are into. And, and I will um, make a plug for um, my recent graduate, Josh Shore, who just finished his master's with us. Yeah, and he's sure. going to be having a few papers coming out soon.
1: Awesome.
0: a rehab for kids with concussions. So Fantastic. Stay tuned.
1: Fantastic. That's great stuff. Everyone, you know, go check it out. I've had the pleasure of working with a lot of the people in the old concussion lab and, of course, with Anne. So I'm biased when I say that they're great but they really are. So do go check them out. Um, and with that, that kind of brings an end to this month's episode. Thank you so much to everyone for listening. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at concussion.can.toronto, and we will see you next month for a brand new episode. So thanks again, everyone, for listening and take care. Head check health bridges gaps in concussion care through simple, powerful technology. Join organizations like the Canadian football league, Trek factory racing, Canadian Junior Hockey League, Eastern Washington University, and Volleyball Canada, who rely on HeadCheck Health to improve communication and optimize care. Visit HeadCheckHealth.com for more.
0: Music at the beginning of this podcast is by Ben Sound, www.bensound.com.
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?